Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. So I've recently rewatched one of my all-time favourite films, The Princess Bride. While watching, it occurred to me that the film only had one notable female cat- character, Buttercup, and that she's really kind of pathetic and passive. But I still loved the film and found myself enjoying it just as much as I always have. So knowing that my co-hosts also love this film, I thought it would make for an interesting discussion. Equal parts, fan gushing, and critical dissection. So let's kick off the discussion with what we love about The Princess Bride. Well, I think Megan should go first as she's just rewatched it so recently. <laughs> I mean, for me, what I love about it is the spoof aspect and just taking the piss out of all the ridiculous things about fantasy books because... Even though I love fantasy, I think for a long time I was actually very much in the camp of sci-fi is so much better because it's not quite as ridiculous, which obviously I realise now is absolutely not the case because sci-fi has plenty of ridiculous tropes in it. Uh, but to me, fantasy, you know, when I was a kid, it was just too, you know, too much of the damsel in distress, too much of the princes and the princesses and the just nonsense that... Uh, princess bride so sends up so well yeah i mean i've got to agree i think the comedy within it and most importantly the timing of the actors they you just get some actors that are terrible with timing and all of them the entire ensemble cast are just brilliant from wallace sean as vizini to uh kerry however you pronounce his surname um (laughs) the church pirate roberts and it wasn't just how they were acting and the the things you used to have. I like, for example, my favourite one is the bit where Count Rugen says to the prince, well, do take care of yourself because if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And I thought that was just such a wonderfully incongruous thing for a villain to say and was so out of place. While he's torturing Wesley. (laughs) But then you balance that against uh, the bit where they're doing the beautiful swashbuckling scene that's very, very traditional and heroic and fantastic. And they just rather than it being sort of something that feels out of place, like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, where every time I read it, it was a case of I could spot all the bits that had been put in, and that really irritated me. But with this, it just flows so smoothly, whether it is genuine drama or action or spoof, it it just goes amazingly. I also have to put in a little bit for Peter Cook as the priest um, when he does the marriage. And on a personal note, I have to say that my husband and I, when we got married, did genuinely try to think if we could try and get someone to stand up and do a reading of that speech in that voice at a part of our ceremony. But we we wimped out in the end. Yes, I was going to say, it's not marriage, it's marriage. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just great isn't it like it's one of those ultimate feel-good film where you just want to curl up on the sofa and just have a good time for the next two hours i don't know i find it really delightful there's just something endearing and and i i i think this will probably touch on this in the discussion later but i think it's it just it's a bit ageless i don't think it ages particularly at all maybe because it's a fantasy film and it does play with tropes um And I feel like it has this kind of quality that's very universal and kind of can really be enjoyed at any time, any place. So, I mean, having, you know, gushed a little bit about how much we love this film, now let's rip it to pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. The thing is, 
Buttercup really is the only woman in the cast with more than a line or two. So you've got Miracle Man Max, his wife, you've got the little boy's mother, and then you have the old woman that boos Buttercup from the crowd. And that's it. No other woman in it has, like, lines at all or, you know, is more than just background. Yeah. To me, any film that's so unequal in its sort of just representation generally in the world can't possibly be a feminist film. But it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like we're going to get into this, but I mean, that the article that we all read earlier from Bustle was making such interesting points about Buttercup's um, general happiness and contentment. And actually, I'd say I'd argue that of all of the characters in the film, she ha- she knows herself best. She has the strongest sense of self out of any of them. You know, she knows who she is and she knows what she wants. And that doesn't change throughout the whole film, really. And I feel like, you know, maybe that's saying something because kind of a lot of the others are kind of questioning their identities and especially Wesley, who is d- deliberately reinventing himself. I feel like Buttercup doesn't really invent, reinvent herself at all. Sometimes you just, you have a straightforward character and, and, and a pragmatist, as you called her, Meg, in, in when you were talking earlier. You know, I think she is the ultimate pragmatist. Yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of the arguments about Buttercup, I felt a little bit like that she could potentially be a feminist. I felt they were a little bit clutching at straws. <laughs> because, and and I think part of the reason is because she kind of flip-flops. On the one hand, you know, she is quite, you know, she fights back and she's, you know, not going to just let them take her when she gets kidnapped. You know, and she tries to escape, she punches them, she doesn't cooperate, all this. And yet, as soon as Humperdinck comes in and she's kind of just becomes this weirdly naive, passive, just this creature that doesn't really seem to care or want to really fight to get any kind of sense of self back. I, I don't know. And that kind of... When I actually take the time to sit and and look at it for what it is, it doesn't sit right with me. But don't you think that's a survival mechanism, you know, that she just kind of closes down and is she doesn't let herself be moved or touched or manipulated in a way like she's just she's unresponsive and that drives Humperdinck mad. He just wants her to respond and she doesn't. She's just kind of hardened on the outside because you know and it's a kind of self-preservation instinct well having read through the book um and having been the only cast cast member the only podcast member to have done so i'm gonna have to talk at you about the book for a little bit because it's quite a different representation in the book Uh, i think that's because obviously there's a lot more of the society that goldman writes about um and there are actually more female characters in the book than there are in the film and they're kind of good and bad. But I mean, talking about Buttercup being more sort of feminist, there there is actually two points in the book where she is proactive uh, and tries to alter her fate. The first one is when she jumps out of the boat um, and ends up not in a pool full of eels, but in a sea of sharks. And then in the second one, and the second element is where she tries to kill herself after she's been married and she thinks Wesley isn't coming. But 
And I know both of those things are in the film, but I kind of felt that when she is actually proactive, she's proactive towards self-destruction, as if that's the only way she can be proactive. And it's the only thing, this is the only thing she's got control over. Um, and in the book, she does stand up twice. And one of them isn't in the film at all. And one of them is sort of in the film, but not quite in its grand detail. So in the first one, she refuses Humperdinck's proposal and they have this wonderful little exchange. And he goes, I'm your prince and you will marry me. Buttercup whispered, I'm your servant and I refuse. But I'm your prince and you cannot refuse. I'm your loyal servant and I just did. Refusal means death. Kill me then. And then she at the end says, I'll never love you. And he goes, I wouldn't want it if I had it. Then by all means, let us marry, she replies. So she's kind of does stand up for it. And she is sort of stern and she lays out the ground rules at the beginning and says, look, I don't want to marry you. And there isn't going to be any love. And he's like, no, no, that's fine with that. And so it is in a weird way, almost on her terms. And the second part where she shows quite some insight is the bit where she's just realized that Humperdinck hasn't sent any ships at all uh, to find the Dread Pirate Roberts. And Humperdinck says, you're a silly girl and I go to your room. And when Buttercup replies in the book, it's a little bit more detailed than it is in the film because she says, yes, I am a silly girl. And yes, again, I will go to my room. And you are a coward with a heart filled with nothing but fear. He says, I'm the greatest hunter in the world. And you say I'm a coward. To which she replies, I do, I do indeed. I'm getting much smarter as I age. I saw that you are a coward, and you are. I think you hunt only to reassure yourself that you are not what you are, the weakest thing to ever walk the earth. Now, within the book itself, they've got a lot more about Humperdinck being a character, being a hunter. And they have the wonderful addition, not of the pit of despair, but of the zoo of death. And basically, Humperdinck has this zoo with five levels, and he keeps all these beasts in there that he lets out, like a rhinoceros or boa constrictor or whatever, and he hunts them regularly. So they have all the way through the book that have this issue about him being a hunter. And there is this wonderful moment of insightfulness from Buttercup later on, saying, well, actually, you know, I see through you, and I see exactly what you're doing. And at the beginning, she's very much laid out how things are going to go forward. And I think that's that's really very powerful on so many levels that it starts off on her terms and she's clear about it. And then at the end, even though she might have been a bit naive, she says, actually, I know you haven't sent the ships. And also I see through your guys as a hunter. But I have to say that those two small passages are somewhat overwhelmed by the rest of the book and indeed the rest of the film, because they're kind of in there, but kind of not. And at the end of the film, obviously, they all ride off into the sunset and everything. But in the book, it's slightly different. They jump out the window um, into Fezzik's arms, as they do in the film. And then they come across the guards. And the boys are kind of saying, oh, no, well, I, I don't really know what to do. And Wesley's like, well, I'm too too ill. And, and he goes going, I'm too mortally wounded. And then um, we have this little exchange. Charles played, Buttercup said. And she led the group toward Yellen. Yellen, who's the head of the guard. The Count is dead. The Prince is in grave danger. Hurry now and you may yet save him. All of you, go. Not a brute moved. They obey me, Yellen said, and I am in charge of enforcement. And I, said Buttercup. I, she repeated, standing up in the saddle, a creature of infinite beauty and eyes that were starting to grow frightening. I, she said for the third and last time, am the queen. There was no doubting her sincerity or power or capability for vengeance. And that's a wonderful bit. And yet, with all respect to Mr. Goldman, I kind of feel like he rather messed it up. <laughs> because once again, we have the fact that in her moment of power, she is described first and foremost as a creature of infinite beauty. And throughout the rest, throughout the whole book, which I think we'll talk about later on, 
everything everything is about beauty every woman is described in terms of her looks uh, whatever she is and the way he's written queen i counted it there are 12 e's in it and it's all in capitals and she sounds like a petulant child which is such a shame because what she's saying is absolutely amazing um, and really does deserve to be included in the film as the moment where buttercup finally proves the point of her being there because she is the princess bride she has now become the queen and she saves them all at the end with her words and her deeds. And I think that would, it's such a shame that that never made it into the film. What? She says queen. Yeah, yeah seriously. Oh, oh, that's, that's really disappointing. And it, it's, it's such a shame and it undermines all of it because it, it is such a wonderful, a wonderful moment. And there are, like I say, there are a couple of other women in it. I won't take too long because I know that I've been talking an awfully long time. But there's Valerie, who's obviously in the film as well. Um, but also balancing her out is Queen Bella, who is um, the king's wife and Humperdick's stepmother. And it's really interesting because both the queen and Valerie control their men to a certain degree. And I know that comes through in the the film, The Princess Bride, we have Valerie kind of controlling Mad Max. Uh, it is Mad Miracle Max, not Mad Max. It's a very different film. Um, and she sort of convinces him to do it. And like, no, it's true love. You have to do it. And that comes through in the book as well, that uh, Miracle Max really doesn't want to do it. And Valerie's like prompting him and saying, oh, but, you know, we, we've got chocolate mixture and things like that. Um, and the queen is quite amazing. And she, the king can't communicate anymore because he mumbles he's got some illness or some age, age-related age illness. Uh, that's why they talk about Miracle Max being fired in the film. They mention it in the book an awful lot more. They're trying to cure the king's illness and his mumbling. And so the king kind of mumbles and the queen says something completely different. And it's wonderful because everybody trusts her to understand the king. But actually what she's saying is not what the king's saying. And she's controlling things around her quite nicely by controlling her husband and pretending she knows what she says or alternatively knowing exactly what he's saying and still putting her own words in at the same time and yeah even though we've got these two wonderful women who are do have more far more control than buttercup ever has the men in their lives just really hate them i mean i think we said in some of the things we were discussing earlier that max calls his wife the witch uh uh, no i disagree about the fact that max hates his wife i i think they have a very loving relationship and they just get on on a level that is you know you know i'm not a witch i'm my wife like there's just it's jokes they're just joking you know it's that kind of it's almost extending up the kind of relationship between two people who've been maybe married or together for like 50 60 years where they've kind of got to a stage where they kind of almost like a reflection of the other one um and i feel like it's totally i mean remember the last bit where they're standing arm in arm, like rounds, arms around each other's shoulder, waving them up, going, have fun storming the castle, you know, and it's like, oh, do you think they'll succeed? No. <laughs> and they're just having this, like, that point, they, they're equals, you know. And I, th- I feel like in a way that they put on that performance for for the for the heroes to see so i've never i i I totally disagree about him thinking that she's a witch i just think the whole thing is you know there's a deep love there um and they're partners in crime i sort of felt like that could be the case and i do like the way that they kind of end that scene together but given the lack of representation in the film at least of um couples that being kind of the only one we really get, other than, say, Buttercup and Humperdinck, Buttercup and Wesley, in that sense, I think it becomes problematic because the only viable relationship that we see, other than the main love interest, 
is potentially, you know, it has a lot of the man talking down to the woman. And the man, you know, he's condescending, he's um, teasing her, he's he's kind of mean about her um, and dismissing her in, in very condescending terms. And I think that because it is the, you know, the only one and it isn't, and I see what you're saying about them, them having that kind of jokey relationship, but I'm not convinced it's obvious enough. Well, I would say having read that passage in the book just literally before I came downstairs to record this, I would say that Megan is right that in the book, certainly, there is not a lot of respect. And it's, yeah, Valerie at one point says how much she relies on her husband and how she's slightly worried that he's been sacked from treating the king. But also reading all the comments on IMDb, you had things like um, Mandy Patinkin, who played an ego, said that the only injury he got from filming that movie was a broken rib because he laughed so hard at what Billy um, Crystal was saying when he was playing Miracle Max. And various people comment that if you watch Mandy Patinkin when he's um, delivering his lines whilst talking to Billy Crystal, you can see him struggling to control his laughter. And the same was um, some of the cast, some of the crew had to go off set when Billy was doing his bit because they were just laughing so much and they were just ruining the takes. So I do wonder um, if there was a lot of improvisation between Billy and Carol Kane, who played uh, Valerie. And whether that kind of softened what was in the books, you had this very strong, perhaps unhealthy relationship between the two of them. But it becomes the thing that Lucy loves because they've allowed two human actors, two comic actors to come along and just run riot with it. I mean, in the, the book itself, there's that famous bit in the film where Miracle Max is talking about what's the what's better than true love and he talks about is it a mutton and lettuce and tomato sandwich with a mutton is just right he gives him this huge long description where it's actually in the book where he says the only thing better than true love is cough drops and that's it so it kind of makes me wonder if they kind of gave billy crystal some lines and he and carol kane just went off in a, a wild interpretation of it and therefore you get a softer more human element to their relationship that is perhaps lacking in the books yeah, maybe they modernised it a bit. Like, he's, oh, it's a nice MLT, <laughs> mutton, lettuce, tomato. It's just, yeah, I think possibly cough drops sounds a little bit kind of archaic, really. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Well, I thought it was quite interesting in the way you used to have this, this phrase that it's me against my brother and it's me and my brother against my cousins and it's me and my brother and cousins against my friends and it's me and my brother and my cousin and my friends against the world and so on. It's this idea that you kind of take sides and it, it develops in different ways. So when it's just the two of them, it's um, Max and Valerie at each other. But actually when it's them against other people, they kind of come together and have this little bond and, you know, have a united front. Like we see at the end when they are saying, you know, have fun storming the castle. And it's like, yeah, it's us against the world again. And, and we're a united front when we're appearing in, in public, but inside our own little house, we're going to be like those two two guys on Father Ted who uh, who just bitch at each other until someone is watching. None of you have seen Father Ted, have you? <laughs> I've seen like one episode. <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh, no. Hopefully some of our audience members know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, can I touch on the kind of being bossy and kind of manipulating the men. Cause I thought that was an interesting point you brought up about in the, in the book with some of the, the female characters, like the queen who we only see in the background uh, in one of the shots when they're walking back to um, Buttercup's room after the wedding. Cause I 
find that kind of irritating about Buttercup's personality when at the beginning of the film she's just bossing Wesley around and she kind of she she gets this glee out of telling the boy who clearly loves her just to go and do what she you knows she wants and she's got that kind of childish sense of fun out of do this for me do this for me um and it's it's interesting that that comes up more often in the book with other characters female characters particularly um, because I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. So, I mean, one of the things I read was saying, oh, well, you know, she's clearly in charge, you know, she's more feminist than you think because she, you know, is, knows her mind and, and tells him what to do. But I I don't think that saying that someone who is bossy means that she is feminist. I suppose it is sort of satire and sort of spoof, but it just really bugged me that every single um introduction of a woman is made by her looks so the first chapter the first line even talks about the year that buttercup was born how the most beautiful woman in the world was a french scullery maid called Annette, who works for the duke and duchess and when the duchess notices the duke falling for the girl she searches for an edge to try and you know, get rid of her rival and she finds that annette likes chocolate so the duchess leaves chocolate everywhere so that annette is horribly tempted eats all the chocolate loses her looks and consequently loses the duke's interest and that's when buttercup is 10 and basically, sorry, when Buttercup was born. And then Goldman goes on to say, well, when Buttercup was 10, this woman was the most beautiful. And when Buttercup was 15, this woman was the most beautiful. So in the year she's 15, Adela is the most perfect woman with looks, riches, youth and sensitivity. But then Adela reflects that she won't always be that way and thinks, I'll always be sensitive and I'll always be rich. But I don't quite see how I'm going to manage to always be young. And when I'm not young, how am I going to stay perfect? And if I'm not perfect, well, what else is there? And she worries about this, and by worrying, she brings on worry and frown lines and isn't beautiful anymore and basically gets married as quickly as possible because she knows she's losing her looks. And that's the very first line and sort of paragraphs of the book. If you ignore all the bit at the beginning where Goldman kind of has this weird bit where he's writing about himself and not about the book, because the whole context of the novel is that he is rewriting a book by S. Morgenstern and he's putting in all the good bits and it's really complex and meta. And I think you kind of, yeah, I can't explain it in this short amount of time we've got. But officially, the first lines of The Princess Right are about looks. And then even the the wonderful queen, Queen Bella is described as shaped like a gumdrop and coloured like a raspberry. Even though she's also described in the next sentence as easily the most beloved person in the kingdom. But we don't see why she's the most beloved person. The only thing we learn about her is what she looks like. They don't say she's beloved because she's kind or because she married the king and was generous with her. Nothing. There is no other information apart from what she looks like. Um, Don't you think this is because uh, it's a trope, isn't it? And the whole think of that he was playing with tropes and he was playing with the the trope of the the beautiful princess um and it was funny because i i texted my sister about this and said oh you know we're talking about the princess bride and you know the argument is that actually it's not very feminist and why do we all still like it and she was like well buttercup is who she is i suppose it's like the trials of a beautiful woman and and how you know and how a, a beautiful woman is judged by her looks and maybe it's not she doesn't want to be judged by her looks as you said in the beginning she just wants to ride horses she doesn't care that she's beautiful but the world sees her as beautiful she they the world sees her as a desirable woman despite what she might want uh, and so she ends up being desired by men okay she falls in love with one of those those men um and and that actually makes her life a lot more complicated 
So maybe we're being too harsh and looking, reading too deeply and, and trying to put a kind of a much more um, complex agenda on top of on top of the story many years later. What I, What is interesting and one thing that I really, really love about this is the love story. And, you know, how you were saying, Lucy, that, you know, she she's beautiful and yes, she happens to fall in love with one of them and then that makes her life more complicated. What I think is interesting that in The Princess Bride, unlike a lot of the fantasy stories that it is kind of sending up, falling in love and having that relationship isn't kind of the saviour for her. It isn't the thing that kind of solves the problem. It is actually the cause of a lot of the problems. And Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which is really, really nice. Also, I really like that she, um, well, that it isn't love at first sight. It is a kind of something that develops and grows mm -hmm. just like real life, basically, which is really, really cool. And again, that Buttercup, you know, at the beginning, even though in, in the film, which is what I go off, but, you know, we don't see much of her life or what she does other than rides a few horses, cooks. That's kind of all we really get to see as insight into her life. But she doesn't seem at all preoccupied with the idea of going out and meeting people or finding uh, a man. She just happens to fall in love with Wesley. And that is really great as well, because, you know, as you say, like lots of these sort of stories, um, you know, because um, it does, it's got fantasy in there, but it's also kind of playing up on fairy tales and it, it, I don't know why but it makes me think of things like Cinderella and so on where it's all about going to the balls going to meet the boys and that kind of thing whereas she very much isn't like that and it just the love story although the rest of the film is about that it's just something that happened to her rather than something that she really wanted initiates yeah 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 exactly yeah. i i think the objectification comes from outside i don't think he is saying that women are preoccupied with looks at all i feel like it's you know actually she is just trying to live her life uh, and is is living it perfectly well and is perfectly happy with who she is and actually all of this all of the trouble rises because she's seen as a beautiful woman and it's when the men come into her life and start fucking shit up that you know you have the story and i'm not saying that you know wesley is uh you know wrong to have fallen in love with her or anything but it is a really interesting dynamic that actually you know buttercup was i feel like is perfectly self-sufficient and and whole in herself she's never needed a man to make her feel valued or loved uh, and the whole kind of beauty thing is not really her fault Absolutely. I think you're perfectly right when you say the outside world is fixated on looks and she's quite happy being a farm girl and only ends up being something else because circumstances have taken Wesley away from her. I mean, in the book, it's really, it's just a terrible moment when she realises she's in love with Wesley because it's actually um, prompted by jealousy. So Count Rugen turns up with his wife, the Countess, and the Countess wants to know why their cat, because she lives with Buttercup with the mother and father, why the family's cows are so good. And Buttercup says, well, you have to ask Wesley. He feeds them and looks after them. And the Countess takes a very strong interest in Wesley. And it's only when she's actually becomes jealous that she starts to realise she's in love, which I don't think you get in the film. I think in the film you get a, that really wonderful, meaningful moment between Robin Wright, Penn and uh, Carrie. How do you pronounce his last name? Yules, Elways, we'll just call him Carrie. Or I'm going to call him yeah, Carrie. Yeah, just, uh, don't, I've, yeah. Never, I've never known. 
But I did read, um, as part of the stuff surrounding the film, that actually the two two actors actually got quite smitten. And the bit at the end where they um, kiss, apparently both of them would make up reasons as to why it had gone wrong and they needed to do another take just so that they could keep kissing at the end, which I thought was very sweet. And I thought That is so cute. I know. I thought if the two of them were smitten, then that lends so much more to the beginning bit where you just have that moment where obviously she's saying farm boy do this farm boy do that and he goes as you wish as you wish and then that moment where she goes you know get me down that that pan or whatever it was and he goes as you wish and that wonderful moment where just the two of them are looking into each other's eyes and i think that's what we were talking about earlier with valerie and max getting two human people to take quite a superficial book and turn it into something that's just heartwarming and really wonderful and just makes you go like that so yeah i mean it's interesting to look at the film from a feminist reading and some people have argued that that buttercup is really a feminist figure but i wonder if if it is a feminist film or if we're looking at it from that lens is it actually wesley that is more a feminist because he to me he constantly pushes buttercup to take a more active role he challenges her and you know, attempts to get her to show what she wants and what, she, you know, she really wants out of her life. And he, he tries to encourage her to go for that. I think that's a really valid interpretation. And I know that when Megan was writing up some notes for this, you said he continues to push to make a more active role in her life, but he also hides his identity to catch Buttercup out as unfaithful to him. And that is true. And I think that was always something that, kind of didn't quite sit well with me with the film the fact that he comes up and pretends he's dread pirate roberts and tries to you know he's really mean to her and i mean the book he's just horrible to her i mean i think he slaps her as well and he just says the most awful things to her and he's really horrible but in the film in particular when he realizes that actually she is only marrying humperdinck because she has promised she will never love again and humperdinck said that's fine i don't care that that is almost enough for him and he has faith in her and i kind of feel like when everything else is fixated on her looks wesley is the one who turns around and is more human and goes i believe you absolutely this is your reasoning and i love you for it yeah i thought it is pretty mean actually it's odd behavior from him you know for someone who went away for so many years and pretty much abandoned her well in the book he goes away to make his fortune and i'm pretty sure that's what is in the film because I had that opinion before. Yeah. I, yeah. So he, he leaves her to go and make his fortune to make himself not worthy, but to make a good life for he them. He still I mean, abandons her, you know, that's still him going away. So, I mean, he could have invited her to come with and they could have sailed the high seas together. Well, not if you're going to be a cabin boy and you bring a be- the most beautiful woman in the world <laughs> on board with she a could, load of sailors. She could disguise herself as a boy. Very pretty boy. Well, I wanted to to pick up on so as you were talking about, you know, it's why was he questioning her so much? I actually kind of got that because while perhaps his response is a little bit overblown, I think throughout the film Buttercup gives up and she shows a sort of faithlessness throughout everything. So you know, when he goes off to give her for to to get his fortune, he tells her he will be he will come back for her, and she hears rumors and just immediately assumes he's dead, and that's it. And then when she, she sees him again, 
she just keeps not believing that he's going to come back. She keeps thinking that, you know, she just gives up. And, and she's a pragmatist. And someone told her that she was that he was dead. And she was like, but you were dead. <laughs> and he's like, death cannot stop true love. And you're like, but, but you were dead. You know, that was, I mean, like, obviously his comment is ridiculously romantic and yeah. stupid. But... I always felt like she was right to say that. She's like, he's like, why don't you wait for me? And she's like, you're dead. And he's like, well, yeah. Well, she's got a point, hasn't she? You know, she's got, she's a, a woman's got to make her way in the world. And you, what was she going to do? I mean, she had a, a okay, yeah, Humperdinck's a shit, but he does live in a castle and he is super rich. So <laughs> I know it's weird because I'm usually the prag, like in real life, I am the pragmatist. But when it comes to this film, I don't know for some reason I'm just like no she should have just said well he was the love of my life and that's it for me now and I don't know it just it irritated she couldn't me go back she... to riding horses again the horse Wesley ruined the horses for her <laughs> yeah, she was fine before he came along and now she can't even go back so yeah she has to go and become a dead-hearted queen married to a shit prince so yeah <laughs> Charlotte, so right, whose side do you come down on on this then? Do you think that um, she was, do you think that she's a pragmatist or do you think that Wesley was right to question her? It's difficult. I think it is, it's almost trying to take two tropes and kind of smush them together. You've got the whole idea that it's true love and she should have waited, she should have sort of shut herself away and shouldn't have married Humperdinck. But at the same time, there is that pragmatic element to it. And I think that's why you kind of get so much division on it because they're almost two separate novels that they've kind of woven together. I mean, in the book particularly, you just get this, like I said earlier, this whole section where she has this exchange with Humperdinck and she goes, well, look, I'm not, I don't want to marry you. And even if I do, I'm not going to love you. And he's like, no, that's cool. I'm fine. Don't mind. I just need a queen. And in a weird way, that kind of makes her more endearing to me because she's laid out her cards on the table and said, this is, this is what it is. Um, I I think she says something along the lines of, I was in love once and it didn't work out, <laughs> which is perhaps an understatement. And she says, I'm no good at this love thing. And she's kind of saying, here, world, this is what I think. And the world is represented by the prince goes, okay, that's, that's cool. And she finds a way to kind of go on with her life. And there's also an element, I know that in the book they have where she's walking down and she's processing and then the woman goes, boo, boo, your true love lives and you're marrying someone else. Whereas actually in the book, she says, you know, I'm going to go down and, and talk to the commoners. And Humperdinck goes, what? Why? They're commoners. She's like, well, I was a commoner too. And they've all come here and they've all waited for ages to see me. So I'm going to go down and walk among them and talk to them. And I kind of felt like this was a woman making the best of a bad lot and going, okay, well, I can't have the love of my life. I'm marrying marrying someone who doesn't really want me, but I kind of do have a responsibility and a status and I'm going to fulfill that. And I think that comes through more in the book. And it would yes, almost definitely. be better. Yeah, it would almost be better if they'd had that little bit where she's walking on the crowd and made it plain that she'd gone down of her own volition rather than just, ta-da, here's the most beautiful woman. And then having someone extremely ugly and we're back to looks again being you know someone to shout and point point out because in in the book it is impossible in goldman's world to be beautiful and smart so there's one bit where they talk about the duchess that we mentioned earlier about annette who is very beautiful and the duchess is described as who was not very beautiful and not very rich but plenty smart and again you kind of get this idea that you can't be beautiful and smart in goldman's world but even more so in the film where they just take away all these little bits that 
Buttercup says that just shows her spirit. And when you cut those out, you get a very strange character on screen, one who isn't pragmatic enough because you don't have these little exchanges where she's kind or where she lays out her cards on the table for Humpdink, but she still takes the same action. So by cutting this, you're not quite showing the character as she is and you are making audiences go, well, I'm confused. Is she pragmatic? Is she romantic? What's the deal? Yeah, because in the film, she only tells... Uh, Humperdinck that she's you know she won't ever love him and so on and so forth after she comes back from being kidnapped yes and there's a bit where she sat on her own I think in the film and she goes that's it I will never love again but she's talking to an empty room and it's like well that little good that's gonna do you love nobody's there to listen so yeah I kind of feel like that was the one thing that I didn't necessarily think Rob Reina did very well I think he got out a load of sorry Mr Goldman but a load of trash from the book uh, but I think there were one or two things he should have perhaps kept in to make Buttercup a slightly more well-rounded character all right I mean should we actually talk a little bit about the men folk um because I think it's it's also interesting to look at representations of masculinity in um the princess bride because you, you know you have uh, you know as we've pointed out this is mostly it's an ensemble piece which is made up predominantly of men, but there is quite a wide range of men. But one of the things that I pick up on when I watch it is that you have the kind of stereotypical manliness, what should I call it? Uh, It's like a sliding scale of manliness (laughs) where you have Wesley is the manliest of the men, and then we have Fezzik and Inigo, and then as you start to get on the villain side, we have um, the Count, we have Humperdinck, and we have Vizzini. And it's very much, you know, you have those the really traditional tropes of masculinity define who falls on which side of that scale. So, you know, the fighters, Inigo with his sword fighting, Fezzik with just his strength and size and Wesley, who is, you know, very good at sword fighting. He's also very clever, though, so I'll give him that. That's that's kind of and then over the other side as well, because then on the other side you have the cowardly Humperdinck, the cowardly Count, <laughs> and Vizzini, who isn't cowardly, but he's sort of, he, he's cunning and he doesn't physically fight. He's short, he's, you know, his voice is high-pitched. He plays my, mind games rather than physical ones, you know, it, it's all it's that kind of very traditional representation. So you feel like it's a gendered scale that the yeah. men sit on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I, I guess it's quite a diverse cast. If you know if you're talking about a, a gendered scale of masculinity, I mean like you really have quite a few different men. I mean like it's exactly what from Wesley, who seems to be the kind of platonic form, to um well I miss where I love that trio because they're so different from each other and they've all got the quite interesting characteristics and the way that they uh, interact with each other um is just so it's part of the magic of the storyline um you know and, and the rhyming you know how Inigo and uh, Fezzik have this kind of special yes. relationship within the group that um Fizzini doesn't have mm-hmm. <laughs> he always I feel like he's always a bit excluded um and yet is considers himself kind of the brains of the situation of, of the group the situation so yeah, I think that's they are very interesting and it would have been far, far less interesting if you'd had the kind of kind of three musketeer set up 
where you know the the place was full of dashing men trying to win the hand of the lady. I also have to just say how much I love absolutely love uh Inigo and Fezzik's friendship. Um it's I think wonderful. it's it's just a wonderful male friendship on screen and I yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of the film. Talking about the rhyming relationship between the two of them that Lucy was mentioning and in the book it's very very strongly played upon. And there's this one wonderful bit where they're going to rescue Wesley, who's not being kept in the pit of despair, but in the zoo of death, as mentioned earlier. And so Fezzik and Inigo have to fight their way through the various animals within the zoo of death. And the first one they encounter is a giant uh, boa constrictor python of some description. And um, basically the python grabs their arms and squeezes them and is basically killing them. And neither one of them can do anything. And Fezzik is, oh, I'm terribly afraid. I'm terribly afraid. And Inigo goes, oh, it's terrible. I had so many rhymes to tell you, and now you won't ever get to hear them. And Fezzik goes, what rhymes? And Inigo says, and he goes, what rhymes? He says, I can't die without knowing the rhymes. And then finds the strength to beat off the boa constrictor just so that he can hear the rhymes. At which point Inigo goes, she didn't have any in mind. I just wanted to inspire you to be stronger and to beat off the boa constrictor. So I really loved how they'd taken that little like you say, a special relationship between them and built it up to a wonderful plot point where it actually helped them get out of a tricky situation. But I was also thinking about differences in the book as well. And you talk about the gendered scale and how you've kind of got all the very physicality and strength and skill in particular on one side. And then you've got the count and... The cunning side, you know. Yeah. It's how they always describe, you know, in a, in a, in a really tropey way, like how men and women approach situations men with their brawn and their muscular stature and women with their low cunning and seduction skills and the, you know it's like it's ridiculous it's that kind of tropey um nonsense that we're all so used to well i was thinking in particular about the guys uh, about the prince i mean because we were saying earlier how they cut out this whole element of him being a great hunter and i suppose we take megan's theory about this gendered scale if you had the prince as a great hunter, then that would put him on the other side of the scale and wouldn't have the dividers clearly. And I was also thinking about the representation of Prince Humperdinck, who's always got very well-coiffed hair and he has um, clothes with long sleeves and they're all very elegant and completely useless for combat. There mm-hmm. is no way that you could really fight in those sleeves. It's all about looks and appearances. So maybe there is something what Megan's saying that in the film in particular, they have pushed the prince and the count over to the other side so that they do look more feminine, uh, less physical, less skilled. And that's certainly something to be said for the film. Well, we asked you for some audience questions, since we know that this is a firm favourite amongst the the SFF community. And um, possibly uh, I've I've picked up one of our favourites to address uh, right now. Uh, And the the question is, um, do you think the presence of the hyperphallic sixth finger on the supporting antagonist, which is the Count, signals the presence of the pervasive patriarchal values prevalent throughout The Princess Bride? That's a meaty question. Excuse the excuse the phallic language. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, hyperphallic. May I grab the answer to this one? Go for it. Because <laughs> I've always wanted to talk about hyperphallic six fingers. Um, I think you've got to look at a couple of, of things. I think you need to take the book and the, the film separately. I think it is very, very possible 
that it could represent that within the book itself simply because the book is so fixated on looks and in Goldman's world every little piece of appearance every wrinkle every perfection every little lump of fat is noticeable and I don't think he'd include an extra six finger without it having some significance um so it is possible um I cut there might be a plot point to it and a, a sort of a completely superficial reason to do it but I think it is possible that it, it does kind of have this additional meaning um but thinking about the film I do have to say that if you look at the IMDb site, it suggested that it was ironic because the person who plays Count Rugen is Christopher Guest. Uh, And he was in a film called Spinal Tap, where you have this theory, where you have this section about turning the speakers up to 11, which has now entered common parlance quite a lot. Um, And there was someone who suggested that Count Rugen's six finger I gave him, of course, 11 fingers, so you could turn it up to 11, and this was reflected in the casting of Christopher Christopher Guest. Although I think that's probably a bit of a stretch, and I think they did that rather well with the the machine that they put Wesley on, which does, of course, go up to 11, so I think that was their particular nod. So in the film, I don't think necessarily that it has any deeper meaning. Um, I think it might be a plot point just so that uh, Inigo can identify the count as very definitely the person that he's going to kill. I would say it's probably useful from that point of view. But given there are so many ways of identifying a particular person, perhaps the fact that it's a six finger and has this phallic significance in a world that is dedicated on looks and every little item is examined down to the last detail, it is possible that it is somewhat phallic. I I just want to, to say the line now. Go on then. Hello. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Prepare to die. (laughs) I would just like to point out that for this episode, I downloaded the horribly abridged version of William Goldman's book and listened to it in the car while I was driving myself and my daughter up to my mother. My little girl sits in the back and she has her own music and her headphones on. And my little girl actually took her headphones off and went, Oh, Inigo Montoya. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die in time with the audiobook. So it it reached out <laughs> all the way through her headphones and her own music. And even though she's never seen the film, even she knows that line. And she quoted at me in the back of the car. And I laughed so much and it crashed. Inconceivable! <laughs> I, I was very proud. I have to say that is probably the best line in the film. It's so quotable. My first ever convention at FantasyCon, I had a black T-shirt on and it had a, a little pretend label on it that was part of the design. And you know how in America you have, hello, my name is, and then you're supposed to write your name uh, as part of the label for like team building and things like that. It basically said, hello, my name is Anigo Montoya. And then in little writing, you killed my father, prepare to die. And I was able to <laughs> I walked around FantasyCon and nobody got it. What? what? Like, what? And there's one one author who I, I won't embarrass who says, I still think of you as an ego because I genuinely thought that was your name. <laughs> what? I don't understand how nobody got that. Go on then. Shall we talk about uh, whether we love it still? <laughs> yeah, well, can we still love it? Is it still okay to love this film that we can, you know, look at and see some potentially problematic ideas and you know like what does it say about us that we can actually switch off our uh, critical feminist brain yeah (laughs) 
everyone where everyone has raised some really interesting points about how you know there are moments where buttercup seems to be kind of lacking um feminist integrity um yeah you know i think if we did do a proper dissection of it yeah we might find that it doesn't stand up particularly well to like the batchdale test or um you know the the high the high kind of values that we discuss on this podcast that we everyone we're, we're trying to you know aspire to um but for all that you know maybe uh, as my sister said like the whole thing is tongue-in-cheek you know it was a a story told you know um ostensibly this is the film version to an ill boy you know while to try and help him to to take his mind off his his illness it was fun it was full of fantasy conventions and tropes all the best parts of fantasy that kind of make it you know silly and exciting and and draw you away from yourself kind of into a world of of where anything is possible and i think that that magic is is and that innocence um it trumps anything else for me it, it beyond you know a, a feminist agenda i just think that there is i think the magic of storytelling is is the the triumph in this film well having read the book i could cope with most of it um the bit that i really did not like in the book was the last bit where um wesley tells buttercup to tie up um prince Pumperdink, and her response is you do it so much better i'll get the sashes, sashes but i really think you should do the actual tying at which point wesley roars woman you are the property of the dread pirate roberts and you will do what you're told and later on Inigo comes in and says help him up and she says why does he need me to help him and he says because you have no because he has no strength now do what you're told and at that point i lost any sympathy i would have had for goldman and his characters and i just went I cannot stomach the um, politics and the society within this book. That Why said, did you tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was about to say that said, even knowing that, I think I will still always love The Princess Bride. And I was thinking about this and thinking, is it okay to to like something that is that? Is it just because it's of its time? Is it like liking the carry-on films and saying, you know, well, there's a few funny bits, even though there's terrible racism and terrible sexism and just terrible everything. But I think what makes The Princess Bride work so well is it is comedy. Like Lucy and her sister say, the tongue is very firmly in the cheek. So even though they present this really patriarchal world, the understanding is that it is all a spoof, that it is not to be taken seriously. I think the characters are just, each one of them is so unique. And I certainly didn't get that when I read the book, apart from the fact that I always picture the characters from the film when I read the book. But I think everybody puts in such a different performance and they are so engaging and they have their own stories to tell and Rob Rayner has been very clever in picking out the bits of the book that would work well as a screenplay and the chemistry is there among them all and um reading some of the IMDb stuff if you've got time it's just wonderful stories about Andre the Giant and how he inspired friendship among them all um so he said that a lot of people found him intimidating so his reflex was to call everybody boss like yes boss and things like that just because then it balanced out the people being a little nervous around him because he was so tall and I think that kind of thing comes through in the film because he is so lovable and he's just so wonderful and I think that the characters within this really make it and okay some of the characters are flawed and Buttercup could be more proactive that doesn't mean that I can't like it I mean I hardly agree I 
really love this film. I watch it several times a year. I sit there and quote the entire thing as I watch it. And it always brings a smile to my face. And, you know, as I mentioned, Inigo and Fezzik, I love their friendship. I love them as characters. I I think they are fantastic. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that my favourite two characters are not sort of arguably the the two protagonists. So <laughs> I don't know what that says, but I love them so much. And irrelevant of any problems or peculiarities of the film or the book, I will always love Wesley the Dread Pirate Roberts. He's just basically my ideal man. Probably shouldn't have said that on a podcast that goes out to quite a few people, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you see... Ah, the wonderful Mark Knopfler. Yes. So just before we go, I would like to pose one question. We've decided that this isn't necessarily the most feminist film, um, despite it being wonderful in every other aspect. So I have to ask, if you could change one thing about the film to make it more along the lines of feminist principles, what would you change? Would you, First of all, would you change Buttercup or would you change the world around her or do you think you would change the men? So for me... I would definitely change Buttercup and potentially throw in just just a few more female characters. But I think just to have Buttercup doing a little bit more, like helping Wesley when they're in the the fire swamp, you know, not not just relying on him to get them through those challenges. That that would be nice. Just just to have a a little bit less helpless, I think. And maybe not quite so naive to just immediately believe uh, Humperdinck when he says that he'll ensure that Wesley gets back to his ship or that he'll send out his his fastest ships to to Wesley and so on and so forth. Like just just have a be a little bit more savvy. <laughs> I feel there's something uh, wrong with saying with changing Buttercup. I'm like, I always feel like, you know, oh, okay, how do we make this film more feminist by ch- asking the female to change? You know, like, why should she change to make this more feminist film? You know, maybe the attitudes surrounding the perception of beauty and and the value that beauty has in society, if that was slightly different, then it would be would be a very different film you know it would i think i feel like buttercup's beauty and and the idea of a woman's value being um inherently tied to her her beauty it drives the plot but it also drives a lot of the problematic things that we've been talking about this evening so if i could change one thing it would probably be to challenge the idea that um women are in this particular world, um, that a woman's beauty is is kind of all that she is. So, yeah, that's probably what I would change. But, you know, saying that, you'd kind of unravel the whole thing. I think the the, uh, the concept of beauty is so closely tied into the, the, you know, the heart of the book. Yeah, I think if I had to change the book in any way, I would say that I would just like 
a few descriptions of women not to be about their appearance. Um, because literally, as I was writing all these quotes down, everything was about the women and their parents. Um, and even when Buttercup falls in love with Wesley, the first thing she noticed about him is how his muscles ripple. So if I could have some descriptions that didn't focus on the physicality of the characters, that would be awesome. Ironically, though, if I would change the film, it would be to add in more from the books, I think. I think I would like to include um, the conversation between Buttercup and the prince when he first proposes to her, I think that would make her a far more understandable and relatable character. And I think the insight she shows when she tells him about seeing through him and that he only hunts to reassure himself that he isn't the weakest thing to have walked the earth, I think that shows a massive understanding of personality that none of the other characters actually exhibit. And I think that really makes her stand out. And those are the two things that I think it was a shame were actually cut from the book. And that's what I'd like to see. And then you can keep the rest of it. And that will be my perfect buttercup. Yeah, I think that kind of wraps us up in the sense that we love this film. We're going to continue to love this film, but be aware of its perhaps potential flaws. But that's fine because we still love it and we're still going to quote it because it is amazing. Come, my love, I'll tell you a tale of a boy and girl and their love story. How he loved her oh so much And all the charms she did possess Now this did happen once upon a time